Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, and we're going to be this morning looking at verses 12 to 21. Let me read the passage for us. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. They are prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can worship you through song, through the reading of your scriptures, through prayer, through the preaching of your word. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this passage, that by your spirit, you would communicate truth to our minds and to our hearts, and that you would seal your truth upon our hearts and upon our minds. Lord, we are needy, we need your words of eternal life, we need to feed upon your word, we know that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from our Heavenly Father. And so Lord, help us to live this morning, help us to understand, and help us Lord to respond in a spirit of worship and in a spirit of obedience to you, that we would be transformed by your word. We pray this for the glory of Christ's name and for the good of your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our, um, our lived experiences reminds us on a regular basis of just how little control we have over our lives and our circumstances. We plan and live our lives as though we actually know what's going to happen tomorrow. But we actually don't know. We can assume certain things based upon the present, but we actually have no idea how tomorrow will actually unfold. When life is good, we often can feel this illusion of control over our lives, as though we're actually the determiners of our own destinies. We really believe that if we eat a certain way, that then we'll avoid certain diseases. Or if we exercise a certain way, we'll avoid health complications. And and though there is a certain level of cause and effect, 
We often know this isn't always the case. You can eat very healthy and still be diagnosed with certain diseases. You see, we convince ourselves that if we just parent rightly and put up the proper boundaries around our children, we can protect them from harm. But we know that's also not true. One tragic event has the power to shatter that mountain of illusion that we thought ourselves to be standing upon. The reality is we all, Christian and non-Christian, in one sense live by faith. In that, we believe the next day is going to be similar to the previous day. But we actually don't know that to be true. We actually don't want, in many ways, surprises in life. Because usually, when surprises happen, they're most likely painful. You get the call that a loved one was in a tragic accident. Or you find out your spouse has been unfaithful. Or that you've been diagnosed with a disease. Or you're hoping for that job promotion, but in actuality, you've been let go. These are the things we don't want to experience. But these are the very things that shake us out of the illusion that we're in control. Tragedy, pain, point us to the lack of control over our lives. But it would be wrong to conclude that if we don't have control over our lives, then everything is just random and pure coincidence. To acknowledge our lack of control doesn't mean that there's no one in control. See, as Christians, we believe that God is in control and that every event that unfolds in human history is under his sovereign control. And this is what we see in the events that are about to unfold here in Mark chapter 14. It's at this point in the narrative where things will seem to get out of control. Tragedy, pain, sorrow is about to strike Jesus' heel. But unlike us, this does not demonstrate that Jesus, that Jesus lacks control of the situation. In fact, everything that's about to happen reveals just how masterfully Jesus is in control of the situation. All the events that are about to take place are happening according to plan. And that's the first thing that I want us to see in this passage this morning, is that events are happening according to plan. Whose plan? God's plan. Jesus is meticulously and intentionally fulfilling the plan of God. Now remember, we just saw two weeks ago the, the moment where the woman beautifully anoints Jesus in preparation for his burial. But on either side of that story, there are evil men at work planning evil things. So in Mark 14, 1-2, we read this, And it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Christ, by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And then jump down to verse 10, you have also Judas with his evil schemes. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
See, the chief priests and Judas, they have these evil schemes, these evil plans. They, they think they're in control of what's going to unfold. They think their plans and purposes will be accomplished. And on the surface, it does seem like it's true. But what they don't grasp is that everything that's about to unfold is in fact according to the plan of God. And Jesus knows this. And there are three things in verses 12 to 21 of Mark 14 that point to this, that reveal that Jesus is in control of the events that are about to unfold. The first thing is this. We see Jesus' foreknowledge or his pre-planning of the Passover meal. So look at verses 12 to 16. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where where, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So the celebration of the Passover is about to happen, and so some of the disciples asked Jesus where he would have them go and prepare for the Passover meal, because the Passover had to be celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem. And in response, Jesus gives this detailed instruction about what they are to do. He tells them to find a man carrying a jar. Now that would have stood out because it was primarily women who carried jars of water in the marketplace. So they're to follow this man and inform the master of the house that Jesus is wanting to eat the Passover meal with his disciples. And, and this, man will, this master will show the disciples a large upper room that will be furnished and prepared for them. And so the disciples do this and everything happens precisely how Jesus had told them. Now, there are two possibilities here. Some argue that this was Jesus once again doing the miraculous and predicting the future, similar to the instruction he gave to the disciples at the beginning of the triumphal entry, where he told them that they would find a donkey that had not yet been sat upon. Now, some also suggest that Jesus had simply already made pre-arrangements with the master of the house And Jesus simply instructed the disciples to follow the arrangement. There was a plan because, remember, Jesus had to enter Jerusalem quietly and secretly because the religious leaders were looking to arrest him. Now, whether it's the former or the latter, whether this was a miracle in that Jesus was predicting or telling them exactly how things were going to unfold, or whether or not it was simply him pre-arranging things, it's really not all that important because I think both views demonstrate that Jesus is in control of the situation and I think that there's something far more significant in verses 12 to 16 about God's control and his plan unfolding than whether or not this was a miracle on the part of Jesus or whether it was all prearranged you see the significance resides in the fact that Jesus' betrayal and ultimately his arrest and crucifixion will happen during Passover. 
It's not a coincidence that when Christ is betrayed and then falsely accused, flogged, and then crucified on a cross, it's the same time that the Jews are celebrating the Passover where God delivered them out of Egypt. Why wasn't it any other weekend? It was specifically this weekend because it was the Passover. The disciples that Jesus sent to fulfill his instructions... Think about this. They would have had to go to the temple to have a lamb slaughtered and the blood spilled on the altar. And then they would have taken that lamb and prepared it for the Passover meal with all the other elements that capture Israel's experience in Egypt. And Jesus wants to make it explicitly clear to the disciples that this Passover lamb, which protected Israel from the angel of death, finds its fulfillment in the true Passover lamb, Jesus himself. It's not a coincidence that all of this is going to unfold during the time in which Israel celebrates the Passover. Everything is happening according to plan. The second thing that demonstrates that Jesus is in control and everything is happening according to plan is Jesus' actual announcement of the betrayal before it happens. So look at verses 17 to 18. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And of course, each of the disciples were, were told, were in shock and also sorrowful, and, and each of them began asking Jesus, Is it I? Is it I? Really, what they were saying to Jesus was, Surely it's not I, is it? See, none of them think themselves capable of such an act. But there is doubt. But you know, none of them thought that they were capable of abandoning Jesus either. And they all did. But you have to imagine, you have to try to imagine what Judas would have been feeling internally the moment Jesus made this pronouncement. He, of course, responds the same way as the other disciples, but try to grasp what was going through his mind when he heard Jesus say these shocking words. Remember, just a few days before this, Judas met with the religious leaders and agreed to betray Jesus. And it was all done in secret. He thinks he and the religious leaders are going to surprise Jesus. And now, all of a sudden, he's probably thinking, how in the world does Jesus know this? Jesus knows this because everything is happening according to plan. In fact, earlier in Mark, Jesus had already implied to the disciples that he was going to be betrayed. In Mark 9.31, where he predicts his death, he says this, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. He gets even more explicit in Mark 10.33, where he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Who delivered Jesus to the chief priests and the scribes? Judas did. In Mark 10, Jesus is already making it clear that one of his own is going to betray him. 
Jesus had already been warning and predicting that this was going to happen. He's not surprised by anything that is about to unfold because he knows all these things are going to unfold according to God's plan. The betrayal, the unjust trial, the flogging, the crucifixion. Jesus even knows the disciples are going to abandon him, including Peter's denial. This is what you see in verse 26 to 27. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. He quotes there Zechariah 13, 7. See, though though everything that is about to happen to Jesus seems out of his control, and all throughout, Jesus is demonstrating that not only is he aware, but that everything is happening, happening according to plan. The betrayal of Judas will not thwart the will of God, but will fulfill the will of God. You remember Joseph and his brothers, their betrayal, which Emily read for us this morning. You remember, though, later on, when Joseph is restored to his brothers, he tells them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And the same thing can be said here of Judas's betrayal. What Judas meant for evil, God meant for good. What the religious leaders meant for evil, God meant for good. Remember Paul's words in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Does all things include Judas's betrayal? Yes, it does. It includes the religious leaders' wicked acts against Jesus. It includes the mob that was there when they cried out, crucify him. All things will be worked according to the counsel of God's will. You remember the disciples' prayer in Acts 4, 27-28, after Peter and John are persecuted for preaching Christ's name. And in their prayer, they say these words. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Did you hear that? They were gathered together against God's servant, the Lord Jesus. But then we read this. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They were gathered in their sinfulness and in their rebellion to crucify the Son of God, but Peter and John and the disciples who are praying praying, say, God, they have done whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Everything that is about to unfold here in Mark 14 is happening according to God's plan. The third thing that demonstrates that these events are according to the plan of God is found in verse 21 where Jesus says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. That is, the words of God will be fulfilled. Jesus is telling his disciples that everything is about to unfold, that everything that is about to unfold is the fulfillment of Scripture. The Son of Man will go as it is written of Him. All the scriptures in the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah's betrayal and death will be fulfilled. So for example, Psalm 41.9. I have no doubt that this was on Jesus' mind when He talked about Judas' betrayal. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. 
Or other texts like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and many more. All these events are according to plan because all these events are the fulfillment of the scriptures. And because God does not lie, the Son of Man will go precisely as the scriptures declare. You see, if things do not unfold the way the scriptures declare they will unfold, then God has not spoken truth. But Jesus knows that these offense will fulfill God's word and accomplish God's purposes. Everything is happening according to plan. And this is why I think Jesus is able to approach all of these events with an incredible level of calmness. He's so calm in all of these events. Because he trusts the purposes and will of his heavenly Father. You see, it's one thing to believe in the sovereign, providential workings of God. It's an entirely other thing to rest in God's sovereign, providential workings. Jesus trusts and rests in the will of his Father because though Judas and the religious leaders intend evil, Jesus knows his Father intends good for him. These events are happening according to plan. The second thing I want us to see in this passage is the purposes of Jesus' announcement of betrayal. The purposes of Jesus' announcement of betrayal. One of the most important questions when you wrestle through a passage of Scripture is always to ask why. Why? Why is this here, or why is this being said? So when I was wrestling with this text, one of the questions that came to my mind was, why is Jesus deciding to tell his disciples that he's going to be be betrayed before it actually happens? And why when Judas is present? I mean, what's Jesus' aim or purpose in announcing the betrayal ahead of time? Well, I think there are two reasons. The first is this, Jesus' love for Judas. I don't think it's an extreme claim to say that betrayal is one of the most painful, heart-wrenching experiences that we as humans can experience. If you've lived long enough, you've experienced betrayal in some capacity. Not only that, We've all probably been betrayed, but also at times we have been the betrayer. There are very few things that hurt like the betrayal of someone we love and trust. Someone we believe to be loyal. A spouse. A family member. A co-worker. A friend. Betrayal can have long-term lasting consequences for an individual. You've been betrayed by a friend, and and because of that painful experience, it's now very difficult to give your trust to someone who desires to be your friend. You project that one experience of betrayal onto your future friendships, and it's damaging. See, when we're betrayed, it's always a surprise to us. That is, we don't know of the betrayal until it actually happens. But what if we did? What if we did know ahead of time that someone dear to us 
was going to betray us. How might we react? How might we respond? Would it be more painful? Would it be less painful? Would we seek to to harm them before they were able to harm us? See, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. And in Jesus announcing his betrayal ahead of time, I think we actually see an act of love by Jesus. In other words, his announcement was the means by which Jesus, one last time, was lovingly appealing to Judas's conscience. And there's several things that point to this, though we don't see it explicitly in Mark's account, but we do see it in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, there's, there's good evidence to suggest that Judas was sitting directly left to Jesus. You would have had John on his right-hand side and Judas on his left-hand side. That is, Judas was given the seat of honor at the Passover meal. In fact, based upon how they would have been seated, Jesus' head would have been just inches away from Judas's heart. This allowed Jesus to speak to Judas more intimately without the disciples overhearing or fully understanding what was happening, which seems to be indicated in the Gospel of John. Not only that, we know in John's Gospel, it's at this Passover meal where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. He would have gotten on his knees and washed the feet of the man who was going to betray him. He was demonstrating to his disciples the very teaching he taught them. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's as though indirectly Jesus was making his last plea to Judas. Come clean and allow me to wash you. And of course we know Judas doesn't come clean. In his hardness of heart he remains unrepentant. But can you imagine what Judas was thinking and feeling when Jesus was washing his feet? Or when Jesus took the bread and dipped it and handed it to Judas, which in that day was seen as a gesture of friendship? Jesus in love was appealing to Judas's conscience one last time. The other reason I think Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be betrayed beforehand is due to the fact that he cares for them. Mark doesn't record this explicitly, but in John 13, 19, Jesus tells them that he's going to be betrayed, but then he tells them the reason for why he's telling them. And in John 13, 19, we read this, I am telling you this now, that is, I'm telling you that I'm going to be betrayed before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. That is, you may believe that I am the Son of God. I love this. Even in the midst of betrayal, Jesus is desiring to strengthen the faith of his disciples. That through him telling them ahead of time, it would help them come to the conclusion that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh. Even in his darkest moment, He's concerned about them and their eternal well-being. Which really shouldn't surprise us, 
I mean, the reason he's willing to be betrayed, the reason he's willing to be falsely accused and then mocked, the reason he's willing to be flogged and then nailed to a cross is precisely because he is seeking and securing the eternal well-being of his lost sheep. These are the purposes for why Jesus announces the betrayal ahead of time. He, in his love, is reaching out to Judas, and in his love and care, he wants the disciples to believe that he is the Lord. Now, the third thing I want us to see from this passage is I think there is a very important lesson or warning from Judas's life. See, I think it's important to ask, What went wrong with Judas? What went wrong with Judas? I think many of us assume that Judas was always a bad apple. That is, when Judas began following Jesus from the very beginning, he always had evil intentions against Jesus. But I think that's a deeply wrong assumption. I think Judas probably had good intentions at the beginning. He really did want to follow Jesus. When he heard that call, come and follow me, he really did get up and follow after Christ. When he heard Jesus teach and and do the miraculous, he was probably deeply moved and in awe of what he was seeing. See, I think it's wrong to assume that Judas was always against Jesus. I think he had genuine intentions in the beginning. But over time, the love of money and most likely disillusionment with Jesus led to his betrayal. And I think that's an important lesson, an important warning for us. Because how many people do we know who started off with what seemed to be a genuine love and zeal for Jesus? But over time, they became disillusioned with him and became captivated by the things of the world. And all of a sudden, people who we thought who were once genuine followers of Jesus, they have abandoned him altogether. Judas wasn't some anomaly in his betrayal of Judas, of Jesus. He was enticed by the same things that we can be enticed by. See, I think what happened to Judas is so clearly described in the parable of the sower in Mark 4, 4, 18 and 19, where Jesus says, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Judas is a, pic- a perfect picture of the seed that was thrown amongst the thorns. He heard the word and probably even embraced the word. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked what was there in Judas. And it proved unfruitful in his life. It would be wrong of us to think that Judas was an anomaly. There's a reason, brothers and sisters, why the scriptures exhort Christians to take seriously to abide in the vine. Or as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Judas stopped working. Or 2 Peter 1, 10-11, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Are you, brothers and sisters, more diligently seeking to confirm your calling and election? Are you practicing these qualities? What qualities? Well, Peter says in verse 5 to 8, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, do not assume that you could never be a Judas. The things that allure Judas away from Christ are the same things that can allure us away from Christ. The fourth thing I want us to see is that there is something more terrifying than non-existence. There is something more terrifying than non-existence. You see this in Jesus' final words in verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. These are weighty words. And here's what I take Jesus to mean. So severe, so dreadful is the eternal judgment for Jesus' betrayer that to never have existed would be a preferred choice than to face the judgment of God that is coming. And I think this is true not only for Judas, but for all who ultimately betray Christ in the end. Jesus, the apostles, and the testimony of Scripture are unapologetic that hell, the place of God's eternal judgment, is real. And that God will righteously punish all those who in their sinfulness rebel and reject Jesus Christ. The Scriptures are unapologetic about this. Jesus is unapologetic about it. Non-existence according to Jesus, would be a comfort for those who forsake him. This is why it's always baffling to me when skeptics accuse Christians of believing in Christianity because it's comforting. I mean, of course, there are some deeply comforting beliefs that Christianity provides. But if we were primarily controlled by our desire to find comfort... I don't think we would believe in a God who promises to righteously judge the wicked in eternal hell. 
It's not very comforting for us when we think of our family members and our friends who still have not embraced Jesus. It's not very comforting for us if one day it's revealed that we're false converts. That's just not the most comforting doctrine. Yet I believe it as much as I believe Jesus rose from the dead. You see, the fact of the matter is, the idea that non-existence is what awaits us after death is in some ways a far more comforting claim than what Christianity claims. I mean, to believe that one like Hitler could get away with all his evil acts and in the end never face any kind of repercussions, never face any kind of justice, that's a very comforting thing to believe if you love evil. I have no doubt that Hitler was hoping for non-existence when he died. But instead, he discovered that the dread of eternity was before him. And this, friend, is one of the reasons the scriptures call us to repent and turn to Christ. Judas refused. But Judas's fate doesn't have to be yours. Christ has done everything that is necessary for any sinner to find forgiveness and everlasting life. So come to him and embrace him. And so my brothers and sisters, let us heed the lesson and the warning from Judas's life. And let us together pray those precious words from the famous hymn, Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. That you would take our hearts and seal it. And that you would forgive us all the times we wander like that one sheep that continually runs away from the fold. We thank you that we have a Savior with a heart who goes after that one sheep. And we pray, Lord, that you would keep us in your truth. We think of your words in John 10, that there is no one who can snatch us from the hands of Christ or from our, our Heavenly Father. And so help us to remain in the vine. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.